every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout, Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the county clerk in Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. So today we are really excited to have Allison McLaughlin, who is going to be talking to us about her career in elections and the passage of HAVA, which she was uh, around for, which is more than I can say for myself, because I was not yet in the election space. I was still doing other things. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We're always going to ask the first question, which is how did you end up working in elections and what have you progressed through in your career? I love this question. I learned so much about people through it. I think my election origin story, you know, like so many other people starts out with, I started off as a temp, but it wasn't in an elections office. I started out as a temp working in the federal policy scene. I was working through a, a temp agency and I accepted a temporary job with this organization called the National Conference of State Legislatures. And it was in health policy, which it was the nineties. So everybody wanted to be in health policy. I had zero notion that elections would end up being a, a career path for me. I started off there in a temporary administrative job. And over the course of you know a couple of years, sort of worked my way into being one of the lobbyists, being one of the, the junior lobbyists on the team. And then the 2000 election happened. And we were all just sitting there transfixed, watching the television, watching this you know huge issue emerge. And the boss literally pointed at me and said, I need you to learn elections. This is going to be a big issue. So I jumped in. Everything was new. It was really very exciting. I was working mostly on tax policy issues. And, you know, I would go to a meeting where it was a bunch of these old guys sitting around talking about the 86 Tax Act. And then I would go to a meeting where we were talking about this emerging issue, potentially the creation of a whole new federal agency. It was just really exciting to kind of be on the on the ground floor of this this emerging policy issue. I was there through HAVA. And then the week before HAVA was signed into law, I jumped ship, moved two blocks down the street to go work for the National Association of Counties and uh, continued there to work on a portfolio of issues where elections was like maybe 10% of what I worked on. Um, I was working on tax issues. I was working on tribal lands. I was working on tax exempt bonds, sort of a, a range of issues, but I just loved the election issues. And I was there through the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, I was there through the, the paper trail wars, beating back the unfunded mandate of what was the, the Holt bill at the time was, was probably the last big fax your congressman campaign that we ran at NACO. And then in 2008, I saw an opportunity to go into elections full time. The Pew Center on the States had an opening for a couple of project managers to come join what was then their Make Voting Work initiative. So I joined Pew. I was there for a while, got to work side by side with the team from Election Line, 
got to work with David Becker on the launch of ERIC. The Boating Information Project was just getting its start at that time, building the case for the Military and Overseas Voter Empowerment Act. And then I got a challenge. I, I literally accepted a job on a dare working. Uh, Roki Suleiman was the executive director of the DC Board of Elections at the time. He was new to the job. He was implementing a huge omnibus election reform bill. So I, I took a job at, at his right hand, being his spokesperson. I was seven months pregnant at the time. I don't know what I was thinking. I took three weeks off when my daughter was born because we were implementing you know, it all. Early voting, uh, no excuse absentee, new voting equipment, same day registration, electronic poll books, all of the above. I really sort of cut my teeth on election administration in the trenches in DC. And then uh, fast forward a few years and the deputy director job opened in my home county where I, where I live. And so in 2012, I came to Montgomery County. I'm the deputy director of elections here. And I can't believe I've been doing this for so long. It was 10 years kind of in the election policy space and now 10 years as an election administrator. And I had no idea this is where my career was going to go when I started off in um, healthcare policy. I think maybe you left one important thing out, and that's you're one of the more prolific collectors of ballot boxes that I know of. My husband is amazingly tolerant of my ballot box collection. I'm an eBay troll looking for ballot boxes. You know, people will accept lowball offers on them because you know, I, I don't think there are that many ballot box collectors out there. What's the collection up to? What's your favorite one? I mean, the world wants to know. Oh, you know, my favorite one, I have one of the uh, rectangular glass walled ballot boxes, sort of lovely wood and, and glass. It was used in uh, Tawnytown, Maryland, which is not in my county, but is not that far away. I'm still waiting to get my first ballot box. I've seen them on eBay. So I'm curious because there are, I, I don't know if it's just through attrition or, or things like that, but there are very few people I feel like that still have the institutional memory of the original modern voting laws. What was your impression of it when it first started? Because you had been working on other policies. So comparatively, when you got into elections, were they more collaborative? Were they less collaborative? Like, What did that look like? It was exciting and scary at the same time because there it, it seemed like there was nobody in Washington DC who knew a thing about election administration there were election administrators to call on and, and state election directors you know who spend a, a fair amount of time with the sponsors of legislation with the advocacy groups but you know, campaign finance was sort of a matter of federal law that there were firms in DC where people had expertise on but the actual nitty gritty nuts and bolts of administering elections, they're just, those of us who were new to the space were having to tap into and find people who knew what they were talking about and then try to translate that information in Washington DC because that, that scene just didn't exist. We didn't have people with expertise. Now I was working for the states at the time. So our big concern was a federal power grab. Our big worry was that the federal government was going to come in, that the Justice Department was going to end up with regulatory authority over elections, really taking away the state's and um, local jurisdictions role. I wasn't too tuned in to the 
local jurisdiction side of this at the time. I was more concerned on the about the state's role. When I went to the National Association of Counties, I learned quick about the, the sort of nuance of the relationships in the space and that states' interests were not necessarily always the same as counties' interests. You know, but it was really, it was so new to the federal policy scene. I think being a Missourian, one interesting thing I saw, I think you, you wrote or said at some point was, you know, one of the only folks in Congress that really knew anything about what was going on was Roy Blunt from Missouri, because he had been a, a county clerk in Missouri and the Missouri Secretary of State. And there were almost no other folks in Congress that had any kind of election administration background. And even Roy Blunt hadn't been a, a clerk in, in many years at that point. He was a real leader in the space at the time. I mean, in my mind, that leads to the question. So all these folks in D.C. were kind of running around like, well, you said yourself, your boss said, you got to learn elections. <laughs> so who did people seek out to try to learn elections at that time? Well, NASAD was a force. The National Association of State Election Directors existed. They had staffing out of the Council of State Governments in D.C. at the time. And so there were a number of state election directors who were flying into Washington to meet with members of Congress and testify and, you know, and really speak on these issues. There were a number of county officials, too, who really had strong voices, developed good relationships with members of Congress on these issues. Connie McCormick, who at the time was the registrar in Los Angeles County, was very deeply involved. Wendy Noren, you know, who at the time was the clerk in Boone County, Missouri, was really involved. It was really a matter, though, of who had the time and either the budget or the personal commitment to spend their own money to physically go to Washington and meet with people in order, you know, we really weren't doing these things remotely. Doug Lewis with the Election Center was really, you know, the, the big coordinator of election administrators. He was the one who brought people in, spoke on their behalf, built consensus. You know, I, I think that Doug Lewis literally wrote the $3 billion figure on the, on the back of an envelope of what, you know, the sort of first guesses as to what kind of a federal appropriation would be necessary to replace election equipment. Doug was really a force to be reckoned with at that time and did a, a really great job of coordinating election officials' voices. Part of this conversation comes from your thread that you had gone into pretty deep background on was you mentioned that HAVA was not the first elections reform bill that was introduced. So when you came in, were you following the original bill or did you get involved in HAVA? And what did that look like as negotiations were happening from your view? Boy, I mean, going back to early 2001, it just seemed like every member of Congress had an election reform bill. There were bills flying and lots of different ideas about what we needed to do to address the problems that people were seeing in, in the 2000 election. The biggest concern that my organization at the time had, the National Conference of State Legislature was concerned about, was the power grab and was the notion that the Justice Department um, would end up with, with regulatory authority. And so our biggest focus was pushing back on the idea that a federal takeover was necessary here. You know, but it, it really quickly became clear that there was going to need to be some sort of a, a federal policy response. And actually, the notion of having an independent agency 
think a lot of credit truly there goes to, quite frankly, to Mitch McConnell. And a lot of the bills that were coming through on the House side were more of a stronger federal role initially. And on the Senate side, they're kind of developed this notion that, okay, we're going to set up a federal agency and it is going to assist local jurisdictions. It's not going to regulate them. So on the Senate side, we had control of Congress really went back and forth a couple of times in 2001. As, as people think back to the 2000 election, control of the Senate was really, was really tight, was really close. And so there were a couple of different members of Congress that, you know, sort of came around to the notion that this, this needed to be a, a bipartisan effort. Really, I, you know, I think the, the credit for coming together on the Senate side really, I, I think, goes to McConnell and to Schumer. I, I think people don't realize that there was a bipartisan bill, a McConnell-Schumer bill in 2001 to address the, the election in 2000, because they were the, the chair and ranking member of the Senate Rules Committee at the time. Chris Dodd, you know, who was the, the lead Democrat on the bill at that time. It, there were a couple of bills on the House side, too. The bipartisan consensus really sort of first emerged on the Senate side. And then on the House side was Bob Ney and Steny Hoyer then came together and said, yeah, we, we need to do this. We need to do this in a bipartisan fashion on the House side as well. And then they really, to their credit, through a lot of staff time at developing relationships with both state officials and local officials to understand the issues, to get surgical about what needed a stronger solution from the federal government and what needed more breadth of providing resources. And by the time HAVA you know, was really sort of nearing enactment, there were weekly sessions where we, we would go and sit in the conference room at the House Administration Committee for hours on end, going provision by provision by provision, picking apart the bill. And you know, questions being asked about, well, how do, how do the local officials in this state feel about that? How would that affect the states that are you know, taking this policy approach? You know, really, really getting thoughtful and digging in. But that wasn't the first bill out the gate. It was not, you know, the, these bipartisan approaches didn't emerge from the beginning. It was, it was very partisan at first, you know, until eventually the chair and the ranking member of the two committees of jurisdiction and, and Senate rules and then in House administration wrote their own bills. I guess with your historical perspective, do you have the sense that there was eventually compromise? One, because the Senate was so evenly divided, and two, that because of the issues in 2000, both parties saw the necessity to address something, that if they failed to do anything, that would be unacceptable. I think that's absolutely true. There definitely was a consensus. The votes were there to do something, but the question was to do what? And it's, you know, it's really easy to get out of the gate with ideas, but when bills start to move down the path, members of Congress start to hear more and more from the local officials back home about the nuance of how this provision or that provision or the other provision might affect the way that elections are run in their own state, in their own county, and so it becomes really important to, for, you know, for people who really want to get these bills passed, to work with those members on the detail and work individually with the local officials back in their jurisdictions to address the problems that, that start to emerge. I'm curious how you feel now about how HAVA has aged. Because I know one of the other things you mentioned and something that, I mean, I 
heard from Wendy very often, this rested a lot of control from the county clerks, gave a lot of it to the state, and that has long-term consequences. And you've now moved into a county position. Do you think that something should have been altered in a different way, or do you feel like just kind of overall it's been working as intended? You know, I think that the biggest challenge that I personally see with the way that HAVA came together, you know, and I, it was addressing the problems that were seen at the time. Clearly, there were reasons that Congress really saw a need for statewide voter registration databases. There was a big debate at the time over whether, you know, and obviously it, it kind of continues to this day, over whether those voter registration databases should be top down or bottom up. And the staff in the House Administration Committee in particular were very insistent that these, these databases needed to be top down. And there was a lot of pushback from the local officials about the loss of control over physical control of the data. And so I, I do think looking now at the, the kind of energy that is out there in election data, the kind of energy that is out there and how to provide services to voters where voters get to be in control of their information, how to have local jurisdictions being able to have a digital relationship, being able to, you know, to text with and, you know, exchange information with voters. You know, that's, that's a little harder to do at the local level when you've got a top-down database and you just don't have control of that, da that data anymore. And so I think innovation really shifted to being something that had to happen at the, has to happen largely at the state level. And there's a lot less room for counties to kind of be the, the innovation labs here to come up with more innovative ways of dealing with data. I think that the, the databases are maturing at this point. And I think in a lot of states where we're finding a way to allow a little bit more advancement in that. But I, I really think that in the last 20 years, innovation at the local level has really been hindered by a, 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 a seeding of control to the state level. You know, it was interesting to see too the, um, the way that attitudes have changed about electronic voting equipment because electronic voting equipment was, you know, that was the, the answer to everything in 2000. And then it only took a couple of years before, you know, the pushback came. And now we had federal bills to go in the complete opposite direction and require the, the paper ballots. And, you know, we're still sort of wrangling over that to this day. That's exactly what I was going to ask you, because I've had the same thought. I was I just had come into elections in St. Louis County when we were transitioning from punch card to the DREs that we purchased. And, you know, that was the big selling point. That's what made them so popular in our jurisdiction, that there would be no more overvotes, that it would help people know when they undervoted, you know, no blank ballots, those, those type of things. And now we, like so many other jurisdictions, have transitioned back to hand-marked paper ballots. And I wonder if there is ever going to be a reckoning again in a very close election with voter intent issues on hand-marked ballots, because... You know, even though the scanners at, at the polling place at the precinct will tell the voter you've overvoted or whatever the case may be, especially in a general election, when you're voting on 20, 30, 40, 50 things, I see most voters, it says you overvoted for county commissioner, and they just say, well, I'll accept it because I don't have time to start over again. So that's something I've wondered about quite often. We're struggling with that here. We had a recount in our 2018 primary. And it was very clear to me as I was sitting there physically 
sifting through and looking at ballots, that we had a good number of voters. I mean, you can see the evidence of voters with macular degeneration or, you know, some sort of other reason why they're just not quite hitting the bubble when they mark their ballot. And now, of course, in a, you know, in a recount, you see that and you can look at the voter intent on that. But in that, in that recount, it was clear that voters with macular degeneration were not a cohesive voting block. They didn't break clearly to one candidate or the other. So, you know, they didn't necessarily change the outcome of an election, but it could when you, you know, when you see these kinds of, of patterns of concentrations of voters that have more of a, a difficulty marking the oval and whether it is sight or whether it's Parkinson's or, you know, whether it's a, you know, there's just so many reasons why voters struggle with that. We have the choice of paper or plastic. We have the ability for voters to, to decide whether they want to fill in the oval or whether they want to use a ballot marking device. And I don't have like solid research behind it, but just talking to voters, it's, it's clear that anxiety about filling in that oval properly leads to a lot of voters wanting to choose the touchscreen to mark their ballot with so they can be sure they got it right. That was clear in what the academic community was saying at the time and what a lot of the advocacy groups were saying at the time during HAVA that there were, you know, there were benefits to going to a touchscreen interface. You know, the voices that the anxieties about security, the anxieties about, you know, could the, the touchscreens be hacked into, they were there. Those voices didn't like suddenly emerge after HAVA. They just weren't really being listened to. They, they weren't as loud at the time or, you know, as, as central in the emphasis of what members of Congress were talking about. Like the 2000 election, the 2020 election has spurred a slew of calls for reform and, and other things. And the S1H1 debate is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds in the election space, you know, in the context of we've just talked about HAVA and how it's evolved and how long it took to get there and how much research and outreach was involved. How do you see that contrasting to what's happening right now? One of the things that I really underappreciated when I was working in the DC policy world was how intensive a focus it takes for you to actually be a local election official. I thought, you know, when I became a local election official that I was going to have all this time to, to play in, in federal policy issues. And I, you know, I rapidly realized that the, the day job is pretty intensive. So I, I don't have as strong a, a bead on what's really going on behind the scenes in, in Washington these days as I used to, you know, and so from that vantage point, it's hard for me to say how real are the questions at this point. I know that obviously, you know, HR1 sailed through the House. Well, you know, political bills sail through the House. That's just what happens. That's what, you know, has happened for certainly as long as I've been paying attention to what's going on in DC. And then, and, you know, and then bills get to the Senate and they kind of cool. And, you know, the, the nuance starts to kind of be, be dealt with as part of the process of, of getting the votes. And then the issues have to go back to the House. And, you know, this is, this is natural, this is normal. And I feel as though that's where we are. I feel as though there's a problem. We need a solution. It's political. It's HR1. You know, it goes through on a partisan vote through the House. And now here we are in the Senate. The voices are starting to emerge to say, well, you know, what about this provision on page 312 of the bill? We need to talk about that and how that's going to affect elections in your district, Mr. Congressman. 
I don't have the confidence of having the, the shoe leather on the ground in the Senate office buildings right now to be able to tell you for sure that the votes aren't there. But I, you know, I really wonder if they are. I, I suspect that it's going to take some time for some of these issues to really be grappled with individually by individual members in order to win those votes at the end of the day. I think that the extent of the partisanship at the surface of talking about this legislation obscures a level of seriousness that I, I think there really is. And there really is, especially at the staff level when working on the nuance. Now, even a member of Congress who is the most outspoken champion for a bill and how it needs to get passed now, 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 can also be behind the scenes saying, we got a problem with this provision on page 312. And, and you know we need to fix that when we get to conference committee. Legislation just moves so much more slowly in Congress than it does in state legislatures. There's time. There's time built into the process to identify issues, resolve them. It takes a level of engagement and coordination. You know, Just because the die is cast and you know one party's for a bill and one party's against a bill doesn't mean that the staff in particular isn't getting together to work out the language of what's really in that bill. That's a great point for, I think, people who do our jobs, especially folks that don't have the Washington experience you do. You know, the thing about election administration is that we have such strong characters. You know, we have so many different personality styles. I really, as a 20-something working in the federal policy space, not only did I fall in love with the issues, but I, I fell in love with the people, too, you know, where these super detail-oriented, hardworking, nonpartisan people, you know, who just want to deliver results for voters. And, and that, that really was, it made it enjoyable to work for and advocate on behalf of election officials, you know, and then it really influenced me in the evolution of my own career path and becoming an election administrator, because I, I saw the opportunity to really work not just sort of at this you know high level world of white papers and testimony but to really dig in and and make a difference for voters and make a difference for how people view their government how people view their county government for their opportunity to really directly engage in the way our government works i think that's a really good point too because that's something that, well, maybe it's not unique to elections, but I see it happen in elections where people work at places where traditionally in a career path, you would consider the pinnacle of your career to be working in federal government or state government or things like that. And lots of people filter back down to the county level to positions that, you know, other people try to use as a stepping stone sometimes. And it makes election administrators even that much more unique, I guess, because that's not what drives a lot of them. I've had a number of people ask me, well, what are you going to do, you know, next? Nothing. I've reached the pinnacle of my career. <laughs> I feel sometimes like I've lived my career backwards, like the way that these things are supposed to work. You get involved in your local community, you establish a career, you develop expertise in something that you know stuff about and then you go get involved in trying to affect change at the at the state level at the at the national level and i started in washington dc so i started at the you know the the machinery of affecting 
that change representing other people, but I really didn't have the subject matter expertise on the issues that I was working on. Um, and so in, in many ways, I've sort of worked backwards over the state of my career. Now I, I, have, these, I have these light bulb moments all the time where I say, boy, I, you know, I wish I had known then what I know now about the detail of how this really works. It's one thing to hear people say it and you know, have someone tell you, this is what the issue really looks like from the on the ground election administrator perspective. It's another thing to see it, touch it and feel it and be like, wow, now I understand. Now I know what they were talking about. Okay, thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. Big thanks to Alison McLaughlin from Montgomery County, Maryland for being our guest. We hope you tune in next time to another great episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins.